This is episode 124 of Beyond the Bulletin, published on April 22nd, 2022. Hello and welcome to episode 124 of Beyond the Bulletin. From the University of Waterloo, I'm Brandon Sweet, editor of the Daily Bulletin. And for Media Relations, I'm Pamela Smythe. On this podcast, we go beyond the pages and pixels of the Daily Bulletin to inform you about important news and views from our community. Keep listening for my conversation with Sarah Birch, the Canada Research Chair and Executive Director of the Interdisciplinary Centre on Climate Change, discusses Earth Day and her work on the UN Climate Report. New episodes of the podcast come out every week, and you can find our archive of past shows and helpful links on SoundCloud.com. Please recommend us to your colleagues and connections at Waterloo. Thank you for joining us as we go Beyond the Bulletin. Happy Earth Day! Yes, happy Earth Day. I can't believe this Earth Day t-shirt I got. My, my very first Earth Day actually still fits. This is pretty shocking. Oh, well, that's awesome. A little bit of nostalgia. <laughs> I have a few shirts that are uh, of a certain vintage also. And by that, I mean much older than my children. So I took action, actually, this morning. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. signed up for renewable energy for my home. Oh, really? Like what? This company takes methane from a landfill. And so I pay, it's about $40 a month mm-hmm. on top of my regular gas bill that I would be paying my utilities with. Hmm. And it actually takes natural gas from that landfill and puts it into the stream. So it's not necessarily coming to my house, but it's in the streams. It displaces five tons of carbon dioxide per year. Very cool. I was feeling very inspired speaking to Sarah. Oh, sounds good. How was your holiday long weekend? Oh, it was great. Saw some family, ate some ham. It was, uh, it was just a delight. Now, here's what's been happening. The university is extending the face covering requirement until further notice. This requirement will continue through the convocation ceremonies in June, at which point university leaders will review public health conditions and advise of any updates. Masks remain mandatory in most indoor spaces for the foreseeable future. When on campus, wear a mask that fits well, has multiple layers, and includes an effective filter layer. Masks are worn properly only if they cover the mouth, nose, and chin and fit snugly. The university has several options for face coverings available at no cost for employees and students. In work areas that are not accessible to the public, you are not required to wear a mask if you maintain a physical distance of two meters or more. More information on all of this is available online on the COVID-19 information website. We'll put a link in our episode show notes. The university is joining the Scholars at Risk Network. Waterloo joins an established global community of institutions and individuals whose mission it is to protect scholars and to promote academic freedom. Scholars at Risk arranges temporary research and teaching positions at institutions in its network and provides advisory and referral services for scholars who are forced to leave their communities for reasons including war, intimidation, and threats of violence. With the war in Ukraine displacing scholars in that region and similar conflicts raging across the world, Waterloo's membership comes at a critical time for the preservation and advancement of important scholarship. Waterloo's membership in the Scholars at Risk Network will contribute to advancing several of Waterloo's strategic priorities, including the ways in which we strengthen sustainable and diverse communities. 
Waterloo International leads the university's involvement. Updates will appear on Waterloo International's International Opportunities page. More information about scholars at risk can be found on the organization's website. We'll put these links and our episode show notes on SoundCloud. Now, here's what's coming up. As we've mentioned before, Vice President of Administration and Finance Dennis Huber will retire at the end of 2022, and a search process has begun to find his successor. There will be a slight title change for the incumbent with the new person called Vice President Finance and Administration. What a twist. Do we know why this change is happening? I have not been given a straight answer on that count, Pamela. Although uh, it, it seems one answer might be that 20-odd years ago, or more actually, the title was intended to be Vice President Finance and Administration and just seemed to got seemed to get reversed <laughs> and fell in fell into general usage. At least that's one that's one theory that we've been we've been saying it wrong for more than 20 years, which I think means that we've actually been saying it right once we've once we've adopted it, right? Because language changes. One mistake on somebody's business card and now <laughs> I you know what? I hope that the reasons are are more detailed than that, but you heard it here first. What I want to know is will there be an ampersand? Uh, likely no. We, we only, we use ampersands in very specific circumstances, as you well know, Pamela. I know. And there's some inconsistency on that front. So that's why I was wondering. Well, we are nothing if not inconsistent. It's a consistent <laughs> thing. We're we are consistently, consistently inconsistent. Inconsistent. That's right. So with all that said, uh, this leadership transition presents an opportunity to reorganize the senior administrative structure at Waterloo, and the Vice President uh, Finance and Administration Nominating Committee has made several recommendations, including that Human Resources and Information Systems and Technology, or IST, should in the future report directly to the new VP. Currently, these units report to the Vice President, Academic, and Provost. And when I said and Provost, that's the ampersand. These changes will provide the provost with the ability to focus more efforts on leading academic initiatives in support of the strategic plan. The provost will continue to lead on development and implementation of academic strategies and work with the VPFA on operational priorities to support the academic mission. The provost's office will remain responsible for faculty relations and academic human resources. Print and Retail Solutions and the Office of Indigenous Relations have come together to curate a new collection of Indigenous products in collaboration with a local Indigenous artist, Alana Jewell of Morningstar Designs. Alana is a mixed French First Nations artist belonging to the Bear Clan from the Oneida Nation of the Thames. She drew her inspiration for the project from the Grand River, the land that is part of the Haldeman Tract. The collection includes a variety of unique items such as apparel, stationery, and beaded jewelry. The beaded jewelry was crafted by another local Indigenous artist, Emma Rain-Smith, who took Alana's original artwork or elements within it and incorporated them into traditional beadwork. This collection also includes an orange shirt to commemorate the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation on September 30th. W Store will be donating proceeds from the sale of this collection to support the Indigenous Student Success Fund. The fund was established to provide financial assistance to those Indigenous students who are most at risk of abandoning their education due to financial hardship. This collection is available for purchase in-store at W Store, located in South Campus Hall or online at wstore.ca. We'll put the links in our episode show notes. The winners of the Distinguished Teacher Awards and the Amit and Mina Chakma Awards for Exceptional Teaching by a Student for 2022 have been named and will be officially presented with their awards at Convocation in June. The Distinguished Teacher Award winners are Paul McCone, Senior Design Instructor in the Department of Knowledge Integration within the Faculty of Environment, and Upkar Arora, a lecturer in the School of Accounting and Finance.
The DTAs are Waterloo's most prestigious teaching awards, handed out by the university's Senate each year to recognize a continued record of excellence in teaching at Waterloo. A committee of students, faculty, staff, and alumni choose the honorees each year based on nominations from the university community. Now, the winners of the Amit and Mina Chakma Awards for Exceptional Teaching by a Student are Justin Schmordock, a PhD student in chemistry, Sanaz Hashemi, a PhD candidate in systems design engineering, Urja Nandavada, an undergraduate student in physics and astronomy, and Ursula Pesterkowitz, a PhD student in public health sciences. These awards are open to all students who have a formal teaching role at the university. Up to four awards are given annually in recognition of excellence in teaching of all kinds by registered students. Congratulations to all of this year's winners. And while we're on the subject, earlier this month, the university announced that two faculty members have received the University Professor designation in 2022. And those faculty members are Professor John Hurdies of Public Health Sciences and Professor Robert Mann of Physics and Astronomy, who are Waterloo's newest university professors. And Professor Hurdies is a past podcast guest, and I'm sure that that helped tip the nomination in his favor, Pamela. <laughs> I would have voted for him. That's right. So, so you may be asking, what exactly is a university professor? Because are not all professors at Waterloo university professors in a way? Well, it's an uppercase U and an uppercase P. And that designation comes from the University of Waterloo recognizing exceptional scholarly achievement and international preeminence. Once appointed, a faculty member so dubbed a university professor retains the designation until retirement. And since 2004, Waterloo has awarded this distinction to 33 individuals. Such appointments are reported to Senate and the Board of Governors in March and April, respectively, and are recognized at convocation. The university's Tenure and Promotion Committee acts as the selection committee and receives nominations annually from faculty deans, directors of schools and department chairs, as well as from the university community. And now the interview. Many view the first Earth Day in 1970 as the beginning of the modern environmental movement. In recognition of Earth Day 2022, the interview guest this week is Sarah Birch, a professor in the Faculty of Environment and Canada Research Chair in Sustainability Governance and Innovation. She is Executive Director of Waterloo's Interdisciplinary Centre on Climate Change and a lead author of the recently released Report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. That is the UN body that assesses the science related to our changing climate. She's here to discuss key findings of the report and what those findings mean for us and the relevance of Earth Day more than 50 years on. Sarah, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. So the UN Climate Report stated that there's been a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions in some countries. That sounds like promising news. It is promising news for those countries. So there's two messages at play here that are really important to sort of hold in our mind at the same time. The first is that the global picture is that we've seen the largest average annual increase in greenhouse gas emissions that we've ever seen in human history. So globally, greenhouse gas emissions continue to go up. That's not good news. However, the flip side is that we're seeing real evidence for the first time of sustained greenhouse gas reductions in around 20 countries. So that, that those reductions are unfortunately swallowed up by the global increase, yeah. but they do show us that it's possible. They show us that, that good climate change decisions and policies are having a real effect and we have a template to follow. And these are industrialized countries, Germany, Japan, France, and even the U.S.? 
That's right. Yeah. So in, in the, there's different reasons why emissions are going down in some countries. In the case of the U.S., it's largely attributable to moving away from coal, despite rhetoric from the, the Trump administration, right. for instance, that uh, that coal wouldn't go away. That transition is already underfoot. In other countries, it's, you know, like Germany, there's been a really important push towards um, towards renewable energy and building efficiency and vehicles and that sort of thing. So there's different reasons in each case, but collectively, those are, you know, important examples of what to do next. Are you encouraged? I'm encouraged by that. Absolutely. You know, these aren't blips. These aren't aberrations. It's not noise. Um, it tells us that even more powerfully that the solutions are already available, which then puts the pressure on our decision makers to actually use them. Right. We have real evidence now for the first time of these sustained greenhouse gas reductions that show us perhaps a pathway forward. You know, there's different reasons for, for that progress in different countries, but in some cases, the reductions have been so significant and so prolonged that those countries are actually on track to limit warming to, you know, two degrees or less, which is what, you know, scientists are telling us would, would help us to avoid at least the worst impacts of climate change, not all impacts of climate change, but mm -hmm. the worst right. ones. You know, there's been real policy choices uh, at multiple levels of government in these countries. However, we see countries like Canada and also countries with enormous populations, so what we typically call, you know, economies in transition, China and others, that um, where the emissions increases in those countries kind of swallow up the reductions that are happening in those 20 countries. So Canada's not doing well. Canada's not doing great. No. We, we have had a couple of decades of climate policies of various stripes. We've had targets uh, set over and over that we fail to meet. There is reason, though, to believe that the seeds are finally now being planted, however, for, you know, a, a turning of the curve of emissions in Canada. And it's a, it's tricky business in Canada for a couple of reasons. Of course, we are a fossil fuel producer. Not all countries in the world are. So we, you know, we're, we're very reliant on the extraction and the export of fossil fuels um, economically. Our, our, because of the, this sort of blessing and curse of, of space in Canada, our cities tend to sprawl over, over fairly vast distances. And so we've become very car reliant. It's, mm. it's really hard to densify them and get people out of cars in Canada. So there's lots of reasons for our high emissions um, per capita emissions in this country. What about coal? Yeah, so coal has to go. <laughs> the message is very, very clear. There's a whole bunch of reasons why coal has to go globally. And one of them is that it's just absolutely horrendous for air quality, like it's directly responsible for an enormous amount of death and, and illness around the world. Um, and so that has been the major motivator for many countries getting off of coal, not climate change at all. Part of the solution to climate change is, uh, as some people say, electrifying everything. So we need to electrify our vehicles and our public transport systems. We need to get our houses off gas and onto heat pumps and other, other sources of power. So that only works if that electricity comes from clean sources. So if we're burning coal to get that electricity, you know, it won't be doing what we need it to do for greenhouse gas emissions. Um, you know, we have joined an alliance of countries, Canada has, in the Powering Past Coal uh, Coalition. And so, you know, there's real steps being taken to wean us off coal. Um, and that has to happen in like the next eight years. So essentially immediately to have any hope of keeping that 1.5 or 2 degree target within grasp. What about renewables? Are they just not attractive? 
They're increasingly attractive. Yeah. So another bit of good news from this uh, assessment report, which is really exciting and to me kind of indicates that the seeds have been planted for a longer term transformation, is that the cost of solar per unit over the last 10 years, it's gone down by 85%. Um, Wind has gone down by 55%. Uh, Lithium ion batteries, which, you know, as critics of renewable energy uh, never fail to point out the sun doesn't always shine and the, and the wind doesn't always blow, but that's why we have batteries and lithium ion batteries have come down by 85% and helps us bridge that gap. So they're now at scale and in many cases are even cheaper than fossil fuels. And of course, while there are downsides to all energy technologies, you still have to produce those solar panels and there are risks associated with that mm-hmm. on balance, you know, the risks associated with fossil fuels just absolutely um, overwhelm the the impacts of, of renewables. Well, despite uh, the attraction, the price of renewables, we did hear news recently about the federal government just approving uh, Bay du Nord, a twelve billion dollar offshore oil mega project. Do you think it's a it's possible for us to meet our commitments if we approve more extraction of fossil fuels? The uh, UN Climate Change Report says that before the end of the useful lifespan of fossil fuel infrastructure, we need to prematurely shut down definitely coal, but also oil and gas infrastructure. So that means that that infrastructure becomes a stranded asset, something we've invested in that we can no longer get value out of. Mm. So in the Canadian context, it's extremely, it's an extremely complex challenge that the prime minister and others have to face when they're deciding what energy projects can go forward. The Bay du Nord um, project is a lower carbon project. They're correct in saying that it's a, it's a lower carbon project overall than oil sands extraction in, in Alberta. And the reality is that our lives are still very reliant on fossil fuels. We can't, you know, yank the rug out from underneath Canadian and global society tomorrow, we would starve and not be able to heat our homes and move around. So they're not wrong that fossil fuels are needed in the short term. But my worry is that this will have a much shorter lifespan if we are to keep that 1.5 degree target um, in mind, that it won't be a wise investment at all 10 or 15 years from now. It'll extract 300 million barrels from the deep sea. And in order to keep operating, they will need to satisfy 137 conditions and one that the project have net zero emissions by 2050. Is that reassuring for you? It's absolutely an important part of the transition to move the emissions associated with the production of fossil fuels to net zero, which typically means through carbon capture and storage or carbon dioxide removal. Those technologies, however, are not yet being implemented anywhere near at the scale we would need to mitigate the the greenhouse gases uh, produced by these projects. But they are an important part at this point, because we've done such a poor job globally of actually reducing our greenhouse gas emissions, we're hearing more and more about carbon capture and storage and how important it is, because it's kind of like the Hail Mary pass at the end here. Mm. So um, that is somewhat somewhat reassuring. However, it doesn't account for the, those downstream emissions at consumption. So when we export those fossil fuels and they're burned and consumed by consumers like you and me, then those emissions need to be dealt with in some way as well. Right. Should we be hopeful? It's very easy to feel overwhelmed by the scale of this challenge. And it's, and it's fully appropriate to feel angry and to feel frustrated and to feel sad. Those are all completely reasonable reactions to this existential threat. However, 
I think the only thing that locks in failure is giving up. So when I see that renewable energy has come down so dramatically, when I see communities making real efforts to become more livable, to weave nature through cities, to get people out of cars and onto bikes, to consume less, to retrofit our homes so that they're more efficient, to just talk about climate change, you know, I'm hopeful that those are all reasons for me to believe that this is an incredibly complex long-term challenge. We will be decarbonizing for decades, decades. This isn't a quick turnaround, Um, but the path now is quite clear. And that's not something we could have said 15 years ago. This episode comes out on Earth Day 2022. It's a day when individuals show support for environmental protection. Why does it still matter when so many years after the very first Earth Day, which was 1970, we still have these problems, these serious problems that we're dealing with? Well, that we still have those serious problems suggests that it's, you know, to me that it's more needed than ever. This conversation is still vibrant. It's still challenging. We're adding new dimensions to it every year, every decade. Earth Day began as as a moment to reflect on the natural environment and the impacts that we are having on that. And the conversation was largely dominated by deforestation and species extinction and sort of those natural environment impacts for many decades. And those are no less important now. But what I appreciate about our conversation today is that we're starting to talk about all the important ways that climate change and other environmental problems like it are not simply environmental problems. They're people problems. They're social problems. And this is climate change is a a question of justice, marginalized people, um, indigenous populations, women, those who have tended to be without a voice in decision-making historically are also the most heavily impacted by, by climate change, by extreme weather events, and also may not be the first in line to benefit from a transition towards a renewable, you know, a low carbon resilient um, economy. So I think Earth Day gives us pause to think about how much a part of nature humans really are and to re-examine our relationship to nature and what it means to have a just and inclusive and sustainable society. The IPCC report kind of sets the stage for Earth Day as a moment of reflection on how far we've come and how far we need to go. What the the IPCC report demonstrates really powerfully is that the solutions that we need are already available and that this is now, and kind of always has been, but this is less of a technical problem, climate change, than a social and a political problem. And so Earth Day offers us this opportunity to have a conversation about the behaviors we need to change, the politics that we need to change, how much is it the responsibility of individuals to get us to to reach that target that is a 1.5 degrees Celsius target? This is such an important, I think, uh, relationship to explore. So, you know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change tells us that individuals and individual choice controls, you know, 40 to 70 percent of our greenhouse gas emissions, which would on the surface suggest that it is entirely a matter of individual decisions, which is actually not at all what the report ultimately concludes. Hmm. It concludes that 
in many ways, our hands are tied as individuals. We're locked into high carbon ways of living because our cities are designed the way they are so that we have to drive, you know, these vast distances between affordable homes and our work. Um, because we don't have options for affordable electric vehicles or convenient or reliant mass, uh, you know, public transit mm -hmm. that's electrified, you know, that our buildings are built to a shoddy standard and, and wildly energy inefficient. So, it's actually collective decisions that are made by governments at all levels, from the municipal to the provincial and state on up to the national governments, that would unshackle us from those high carbon pathways and allow us to choose, kind of, okay. you know, unleash the potential of individual choice. Politicians will only make policy on issues that they know to be priorities for their constituents, in a democracy at least. So when individuals demonstrate through their own actions that this is a matter of priority to them, when they vote, when they write letters, when they take the individual actions that are available to them, they send a signal that this is something that they're voting on. This is something that matters to them. And they are freeing politicians. They're giving them permission to lead and to then set the policies in place that would advance this even further. Individual action is incredibly important, not least because it's taking some power back into your own hands and feeling like, yes, I'm constrained in lots of ways, but these things I have a choice over, and so I'm going to make the changes I can and hopefully be a part of that greater groundswell. What's a way to engage individuals when maybe they feel it's futile? There are... Um, so many solutions available. It isn't about just one. So most people, not everyone, most people have access to a greater range of plant-based diet options, for instance. And this isn't about being extreme. This isn't about, you know, uh, moving from, you know, zero to a hundred in a second. This is about gradually making choices to, you know, incorporate more plants into your diet or more locally grown food and this kind of thing to remove, you know, to reduce the carbon footprint of your diet. It's not necessarily about buying a Tesla. It's about joining a car share program or walking once a week or carpooling with friends or, you know, working from home as we've learned to, um, through COVID. So, um, and same with building technologies, of course, it helps when we have incentives available for retrofitting our homes. And, and that, that really is an important ingredient to reduce those, you know, upfront costs of making those changes. Um, but we do the little bits that we can. And the most important thing in my mind, because this is a collective action challenge, is voting and talking about it with other people, you know, sharing what we know and finding the places where our values align, because I think we agree on a lot more than we disagree on um, in this space if we, if we just have the conversation. The theme of Earth Day 2022 is invest in our planet. Can we buy or spend our way out of this climate crisis? So we can't consume our way out of this crisis. And there are certainly a lot of consumer goods that are splashed with, you know, claims to being carbon neutral or less environmentally harmful and this kind of thing. And that's, that's a whole marketing ploy. I do think, though, that our IPCC report shows that we are underspending on this transition by 300 to 600%. So our, our investment, our finance, the flow of funds need to go up by a factor of three to six to really accelerate this change at the scale we need. And that's investment in renewable energy and in the, the technologies, the you know, industrial processes, the vehicles, all of this that we need as part of the transition. So that kind of spending is absolutely crucial. And it's a huge justice issue because, of course, we know that the poorest countries globally are the hardest impacted also 
um, by climate change impacts and don't necessarily have the resources that they need to leap over this dirty phase of development towards a cleaner uh, renewable energy path. And that is a responsibility of wealthier industrialized nations like ours. Mm. What kind of reaction have you had to the report and the findings in the report? Yeah, so it's been a bit of a mixed reaction. Rightly so, our attention is quite focused on uh, the war and the atrocities unfolding in Ukraine, which has sparked a really important conversation about our reliance on fossil fuels and mm-hmm. and the energy security benefits that we might find in transitioning away from those. The, the challenge is that we know with every successive intergovernmental panel and climate change report, the wording becomes more forceful and more pointed and more desperate, saying that, you know, this this target of 1.5 degrees of warming or 2 degrees of warming is almost out of reach. And we have almost locked ourselves into a path where we will be, you know, having to withstand pretty uh, unfathomable climate change impacts for the next couple of decades. So the science is established. I think what is resonating in this cycle is just how much promise there is on the solutions side, that we don't have to sit back and wait for some widget to be developed 30 years from now or to cross our fingers and maybe put blinds up in front of the sun, whatever. Anyway, these geoengineering solutions or other things, that the solutions are in hand and already rolling out. And and so we just need to move faster. What does it mean for you to be part of this intergovernmental panel on climate change? It's an enormous honor, honestly. Um, You know, there's no scientific collaboration on earth like it. You know, you have the real gamut of scientists who are doing this voluntarily. They're nominated by their national government to uh, represent the country as a scientist on the IPCC, but it's voluntary. Um, It's an enormous labor of love over, over many years. You know, we reviewed over 18,000 scientific peer-reviewed articles, um, over many rounds of review, we had to deal with 60,000 review comments, and we have to respond to and account for every single one of them one by one Wow! Um, to make sure that we're taking on board all of that, all of that critique and all of that additional evidence. So it's a remarkable collaboration. And it's also, as a, as a transdisciplinary sustainability scientist, it's such a beautiful illustration of science colliding with policy, because what begins as a scientific process ultimately is woven into politics and, you know, national level and international treaty making and national level decision making. And so that's a really incredible process to to witness. What should people do when they were confronted with the findings and the recommendations and just feeling powerless? What should they be doing? You know, to frame it slightly differently, one thing that's been lacking is that we've we've often been focusing on what we have to give up to deal with climate change, what we have to do without Mm -hmm. and move away from. And there are lots of things we have to move away from, but we haven't explored enough or talked enough about what we're moving towards and what collectively motivates us. So it's that vision of a sustainable future. What does your neighborhood feel like? What is it? smell like? What is the, what, what does dinner taste like? How long do you have to spend in a car? You know, what is your job? How quickly can you get into nature? Does it take four hours to get to wilderness or is it woven through your city? How hopeful are you feeling about the path we're on and the future that we're creating for, for our children and our communities? So it's the, the vision of a sustainable future. And I'm strongly of the mind that there isn't only one, there are many 
And it's really important to think about who is a part of that conversation, who gets to imagine um, where we're headed um, and then advance us along that process. And so that has to be a much, in my view, a much, much more inclusive and open conversation so that we can share our vision of what sustainable communities might look like. Let's think more about what we're gaining. I mean, you, so you got out of your car and, and onto your bike and now your physical health is better. Your mental health is better. You um, are sick less often. You might walk to work with friends and get more time with people that you love. Um, you might be eating more diverse and delicious foods. You might, um, you know, just spend less time commuting in general and more time doing things that you enjoy. You know, I think there's so many ways that dealing with climate change in a real meaningful, thoughtful way can deliver such a long list of other benefits that we haven't even really fully considered if we do it right. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for being here and for doing this really important work. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Well, that about wraps it up for us this week. To ensure you don't miss an episode, please subscribe to the Beyond the Bulletin podcast wherever you get your podcasts and recommend us to your colleagues and Waterloo alumni. Please follow us on Twitter at UW Daily Bulletin. You can also find select interviews on the university's YouTube channel. Just look for the Beyond the Bulletin playlist there. Stay safe and wear a mask. You can reach us by email at bulletin at uwaterloo.ca. Thanks for listening as we went Beyond the Bulletin. So, in addition to Sarah Birch, I just want to say thank you to all of the faculty members, researchers, and others in our campus community for all the work that they do to support the planet. Well said, Pamela. Where would we be without the planet? That's a very good question. <laughs>